Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Gather round while I sing you of Werner von Braun, a man whose allegiance is ruled by expedience. Call him a Nazi, he won't even frown. A Nazi schmatzi, says Werner von Braun. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of Patented, a podcast all about the history of inventions with me, Dallas Campbell. This is a a special episode. It's part of our little mini-series that we're doing all about evil inventors. Or should that be evil inventors? With a question mark. In this little series, a guest and myself are going to be taking a deep dive into the life and career of a prominent inventor of history, and asking the question, were they evil or is it a bit more complicated? You will know the name Dr. Werner von Braun, I'm sure. He was one of the most important rocket scientists and champion of space exploration of the 20th century. And one of the top scientists in Germany, he was actually brought to the US after World War II as part of Operation Paperclip, which was a secret US intelligence program in which German scientists and engineers and technicians who were working on the rocket program there were taken from former Nazi Germany to America for government employment in America's own rocket program after the end of World War II. You'll also be familiar with perhaps the thing that he is most famous for, the V2, the Vengeance Weapon 2, the rocket that rained down on London and Holland that was developed in Pina Monday. The V2 was the primary brainchild of Dr. Werner von Braun and his rocket team in Germany. It was a spectacular weapon, really the most advanced device deployed in World War II until the atomic bomb and actually became the very first vehicle that launched anything into space. After moving to the US after World War II, Werner von Braun became chief director of the US Army Ballistic Weapons Program and was essentially the national and international focal point for the public promotion of spaceflight. He'd go on to become the deputy associate administrator for planning with NASA. And certainly he was one of the fathers of the American space program. He was the designer, after all, of the famous Saturn V rocket that took us to the moon. Now, although we can't deny his brilliance and his contribution to space exploration, we must ask the question, why were the US so eager to sweep his Nazi past under the rug? Well, 
for obvious reasons, perhaps. After all, the man was a member of the SS. So today we're going to try and answer this question. How do we talk about Dr. Werner von Braun? Was he evil? Was he a genius? Was he brilliant? Was he a patriot? Well, to answer this question, I am joined by Annie Jacobson. She's the author of Operation Paperclip, the secret intelligence programme that brought Nazi scientists to America. Hi, Annie. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you with us. Thank you for having me. Of course, when I think about Werner von Braun, I think of once the rockets go up, who cares where they come down? That's not my department. And that is an integral part of his story in the United States. That idea that some people saw him as a malevolent creature and others saw him as an American science savior. And this is the kind of debate we'll sort of get to in the end. Actually, can I just tell you my Tom Lehrer story first? Sure. So that little quote, once the rockets go up, is a song by Tom Lehrer. I wrote a chapter of my book, which is a space history book a few years ago. I wrote a chapter about Werner von Braun. And I, I had that song, Tom Lehrer's famous song about Werner von Braun in my head. And I thought, actually, you know what would be really fun would be to publish in the chapter in my book the sheet music. So then people could play along if they wanted to. They could do it. So I thought to myself, okay, well, how am I going to, do I need the right to do that? How am I going to do that? And Tom Lehrer isn't around anymore. Anyway, eventually, after much struggling and trying to work out who actually owned the rights to the song, someone gave me a number and said, oh, this is Tom Lehrer's publishing company or whatever. And I called it American number and I called it from the UK. And this guy answered and I explained who I was and what I was doing. And he said, well, this is Tom Lehrer. Wow. You know, he's an old man, obviously, but, and he's like, well, what can I do for you? And I explained, he said, okay, well, here's the deal. He said, I will give you exclusive permission to publish the sheet music of my song, Werner von Braun, as long as you also have a footnote that explains what an absolute he was. Insert a beep there. And so I did, legally, I had to say what a terrible human, because Tom Lehrer absolutely... Absolutely hated him. He had strong opinions mm-hmm. about Dr. Werner von Braun, mm-hmm. Dr. Space. Anyway, right after that, Tom Lehrer made his music completely available to anyone, copyright free. And now this little bit will make sense. I want to discuss about how we should think about Werner von Braun in a bit and how he should be remembered and the sort of problems with it. But let's, for our listeners, let's just talk a little bit about the history, who he was, and then we'll move on to Operation Paperclip a little bit later on. But for the uninitiated, who was Werner von Braun? You know, I think the most poignant and explosive way to think about von Braun is to go back in time to June of 1944 in England when these V-2 rockets are raining down on the country, causing havoc and hell and murder and mayhem. And they are the fastest, most fearsome flying weapon ever created thus far. And that is how many people around the world became introduced to Von Braun. Of course, he was known to the military community and the intelligence community prior to that. But in that moment, he came onto the scene. And so to disassociate him from that moment in time is, I believe, a disservice to history. But therein lies the debate. For our listeners, the V2, people would have heard, but that really was the first kind of rocket. And it came about really because of Germany's inability to arm. The Treaty of Versailles meant Germany couldn't rearm 
after the First World War. And so the rocket programme of which the V1 and the V2 was a kind of response to that, wasn't it? All of Nazi Germany's armament programs were a response to that. They were secretly building weapons, which would later become known as wonder weapons, sort of working with this idea of military technology and propaganda interwoven. And of course, there's a legacy for that today. But I believe that's where a lot of this in the modern era began. And yes, the V2, I mean, V1, okay, less kind of important. The V2 was really the missile that hit London and hit Antwerp. And, you know, think about it. It's a 46, 47 foot long flying bomb. It's got 2000 pounds worth of explosives in its nose cone. And the big fear, particularly for the British, was that Hitler would put chemical weapons inside the nose cone. At one point, your country during World War II issued 4.3 million gas masks to the city dwellers and told them to pray. That's what was going to maybe be coming inside the V2. Am I right in thinking that Hitler was pretty ambivalent about the rocket program? I mean, rockets were, they didn't exist. Well, they did exist, but it wasn't like we're going to win the war. It seems like Hitler already kind of lost the war by that point, And this was a kind of last gasp. I would argue differently for this purpose, is that, you know, as strength waned on the side of the Nazis, delusion grew within the Nazi upper echelons. And you had Albert Speer, Minister of Armaments. You had all kinds of elite military leaders around the Fuhrer telling him, oh, the wonder weapons are coming. The wonder weapons are coming and egging him on to believe such things because he needed to deliver that propaganda to the people to keep the average German Joe on his side. And the V2 was his favorite program. And von Braun was his favorite scientist. So von Braun, rocket scientist working at Pienemunde, which is on the North German Baltic coast, most famous for developing the, the V2. In fact, actually right where I'm sitting here, there is a blue plaque just over there on Highbury Corner, which where a V2 rocket landed. Yes. So there we go. Mm-hmm. Let's park that for a moment. We're going to come back to the V2 in a moment, but thank you for setting that up and you're absolutely right. Can we go back to Von Braun as a child? Who was he? Where did he come from? Why did he become a rocket scientist? Where did that interest come from? Well, when I think of Von Braun, I think of the little Von in his name, right? So Germany, like all societies, had a class or a case system. And Von Braun was allegedly at the top. I mean, everyone who's at the top always wants to be sort of more at the top. And I think the way in which history has written Von Braun in terms of him as a person, which I know less about than I know about him as a scientist, right? So, Mm. but as a person, he came from a wealthy family and he was part of that group of individuals who put science first. At least this is in the rewriting of history because not a lot of original documentation survives. But he became interested in space, or he rather, he became interested in flight early Mm. on. And he's known as the wonderkind of flight. And he began to develop the idea of, if you know, if you can fly from point A to B, maybe you can fly into space. There's a lot of debate about whether or not that was really leading him. In his interviews, he has always put space flight first. I'm just curious kind of where that came from. I'm just thinking about Germany 
obviously before the Second World War, his connection with people like Hermann Obert, the rocket scientist, and Fritz Lang, who did Frau Imond's Woman in the Moon, which was very much based on the work of Hermann Obert and people like that. How plugged in was he into that world of fantasy at the turn of the century and the emerging technologies that were being developed in, in rocketry? Well, it depends who you ask, right? So Von Braun in the 50s and 60s, when he became this American space hero, much was written about him and by him to indicate exactly what you're suggesting, that he was always this great dreamer among dreamers. Mm. I mean, that's a convenient take, but when I look at the history of Von Braun and his ability to rewrite his narrative to suit himself, that's how I interpret that. It's very easy to look back and say, oh, I was yeah. always dreaming of greater things. What's your take on it then? What did you find out? If that's the sort of popular image, he was a kind of Muskian figure who dreamt of colonising other planets. In your research, what did you find out about him? My take on him is based, of course, on actual declassified documents that indicate the scientist's actions, okay? So you mentioned Pinamunde. Well, Pinamunde gets bombed by the Allies, and now the rocket program, which von Braun is leading, certainly in vision, alongside General Dornberger in sort of the technology and the engineering of it, the work must go on. And so the program moves into the most apocryphal, abysmal, penal colony underground in a place called Nordhausen. Basically a slave labor death camp facility where slaves of the Reich, concentration camp prisoners, are handpicked by Von Braun and his team and taken underground and forced to build these rockets until they die. And die they did. Thousands of individuals were there working. So that's how I see the scientist Von Braun. If that is what a person is willing to do to make their program continue, this whole idea of fantastical space dreams must also be considered in that light, to my eye. Am I right in thinking that he always kind of held his hands up and says, well, I'm not political. I was nothing to do with the politics. In that Tom Lira line, that's not my department. He was always saying, oh, I just want to colonize space. I want to go into space. I want to go to Mars. I want to do all these amazing things as a kind of defense. Well, again, let's look at the facts. I mean, if, okay, 1933, Hitler takes power. Von Braun, the young Von Braun, joins a Nazi riding club. By 1937, he is working with the SS. That is very early. And so, again, where is this man's thinking? This man's thinking is with the Nazi party. And you're absolutely right that much of history, certainly when we look at the 50s and 60s in America, was initially rewritten, it's beginning to change, to suggest that he had nothing to do with the Nazis and that he was only pursuing his dream. And that's just simply not true. You mentioned Dornberg. I've got Dornberg's book in front of me, which I've been reading. And he talks in the beginning about the book about the way history should be written. He's like, okay, oh, and this book was written in 1952. And there's absolutely no mention of concentration camp slave labour or anything like that at all. It is quite revealing how all this is remembered. And I'm right in thinking that more people died making the V2 than were ever killed 
by the V2. Probably almost certainly. And of course, we now have unearthed witness testimony from Nordhaus and the slave laborers, some of whom managed to survive. And you can see a lot of the terror and horror that the employees were subjected to there, right? But Mm. then you have on the other side of thing, the science that came out of it. And I'm really interested in that because how does one separate a person out? I mean, that is what we were talking about. This is going to segue us into Operation Paperclip, which kind of really sharply focuses that exact question. I just want to get a bit more context on Von Braun, the person and the scientist, and how he got involved in rocketry in the first place. And why was it, particularly in Germany, in the sort of Weimar period, why were rockets suddenly popular? Where did that even come from? Well, as you mentioned, I mean, this idea of space flight was also going on in the United States. And I think you know, there are different schools of thought about why certain advances in technology crop up simultaneously Mm. in different places around the globe, maybe even when they're not sharing information. As far as the American military and the German military sharing information in the 30s, there was most certainly an information sharing going on, which not a lot of people know about. In other words, many of the American generals who went to find these Nazi scientists immediately in the aftermath of the war in the ruins of the Reich knew some of these individuals. Not the case with Von Braun, but certainly the case with airplanes, with aircraft. You know, in the 30s, the two nations were advancing aircraft and wanted to know what the other one knew. When I think of American rocketry, you think of Robert Goddard, Mm-hmm. The experimentation that Robert Goddard was doing with rockets, liquid-propelled rockets, was that the same kind of time? I mean, that was obviously before the Second World War. Was that the same time that von Braun and Hermann Obert and others were doing sort of experimental rockets? Was information shared in that period? They were looking at one another's progress, but keep in mind the Americans fell dramatically behind. And so when the V-1 and the V-2 came on the scene, the memos at the Pentagon, at the War Department, were like, oh my God, they're 10 years ahead of us. Mm. 10 years. That is a long time in military technology. So the German advance led by von Braun and Dornberger was massive. And it was terrifying to the Allies. So we've got this Peenemunde, this place in northern Germany. I read somewhere that it was chosen by von Braun's mother because she used to holiday there or something like that. I can't remember. But anyway, this is where this rocket program was being developed. Buchenwald prisoners were being used as slave labour in order to build these rockets. We knew he was a Nazi party member. He was a, a major in the SS. After the war ended, what happened to Pienemunde? Why did von Braun end up going to America? I imagine that photograph of von Braun with his arm in a plaster cast being yes. carted off by the Americans. What was all that about? So Pienemunde is no more. The whole rocket program is in Nordhausen underground in the Harz Mountain. Von Braun is there. They're all working tirelessly to send these V2s at their enemies and elsewhere on the continent and in England. And they're even coming up like sort of in this last minute rapid technology with things like mobile launchers, which is just astonishing to the Allies and incredibly dangerous that you could quickly push a launch pad out into the middle of the forest and send a V2 off it and hit Antwerp. That was terrifying because the Allies couldn't get their jet fighters over it that quickly. And so by that time, by the end of the war, Von Braun was number one 
on the U.S. blacklist. That is the list of scientists that were wanted by the U.S. He was also wanted by the Russians. And that's where the real drama begins. And I think a lot of the debate begins because who was going to get him first? When you say he was on a blacklist, was he on a blacklist because he wanted to be arrested and punished or he was on a list because, crikey, he knows a lot of stuff about rockets and he'd be very useful working for us? The latter. And it was literally called the blacklist, which is fascinating. And he was literally person number one because of the V2. And what's interesting here too, and we could digress about the British and the Americans, we Americans kind of, I don't want to say we threw you under the bus, but right. I mean, there was not a lot of transparency going on about what we really wanted. So, and again, I'm referring to declassified documents I have looked at in the National Archives, whereby you see American technical intelligence experts that are looking for Von Braun playing nice with the British. Oh, yes, 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 we're in this together. And at the same time, making a massive rush to find him on our own, and not just him, but his documents, his blueprints. Did Von Braun, I mean, after the war... What happened? Did he go into hiding? Did he give himself up? Or what was the circumstances? It's a very specific and dramatic narrative. And I write it moment by moment in Operation Paperclip. Let me summarize it quickly here, right? So the war is coming to an end. And a lot of these duplicitous Nazi scientists realize that despite Hitler's saying, the wonder weapons will save us all, these top ranking Nazi scientists, of which Von Braun was one, realize, wait a minute, we better cut and run. And they all had a very distinct, correct feeling. Everyone was going to be interested in their technology, the Russians, the British, and the Americans. And every one of these Nazi scientists in their statements, etc., make really clear that they want to go with the Americans. First of all, they have the most money. And second of all, they have the best facilities. They hate the Russians and the British hate them. So everyone is working. And when I say everyone, I mean in every weapons category, to stash documents that will then surge as leverage. And that's exactly what Von Braun did. You know, he gets into this car accident, which is why he has the broken arm. He orders his two deputies to take all the V2 blueprints and hide them in this mine in Dorton and seal off the cave, you know, and then the whole group of them secret away to the Harz Mountains. And so while the war is ending, they're sun tanning in the Alps, dreaming, if you will, about their future in America, which is precisely what happened. So he knew that he wasn't going to be captured and arrested and put on trial or anything. He knew, hey, I'm on the gravy train. I mean, I'm either going to America or Russia, and either way, I'm going to be doing the work I want to do. He knew this, and it's exactly what came true. I mean, there they are up in the Alps, suntanning, and Von Braun sends his brother Magnus on a bicycle to literally go tap on the shoulder of some American army privates who are guarding a gate post and say, hey, I got the big cheese, my brother's up in the Alps. And then they went. And to read these documents, my God, you can't even imagine the hubris from Von Braun and Dornberger and Arthur Rudolph and Kurt Davis, all of these individuals who, to many people's eyes, committed war crimes, how they knew they could sweet talk their way into the American system. And these individuals, mind you, by September, October, were in the United States of America. There's a bit in Dornberger's book that just, as you said that, Dornberger writes, he says, 
man's technical progress does not come only from men with great ideas, but almost as frequently from those who first apply unshakable faith and tireless energy to an idea's realisation. That seems to be Von Braun. He wasn't just a clever guy. He seemed to have this chutzpah. He seemed to have this personality, this... Well, he was a kind of a showman, really. It sounds like even at that point, he had a kind of confidence that he could make things happen. Dornberger almost inarguably was a snake, okay? And when I was writing Operation Paperclip, I kept on my office wall a photograph of Dornberger and standing beside Himmler in an outfit that resembled Himmler's, you know, the sort of long, knee-length leather coat, the swastikas, the death head totem on the cap. This was Dornberger. And yet, once he was embraced by the Americans, he too rewrote his history, just like you read, to have it all be so romantically space-based, when in fact, he was a militaristic, double-crossing creature of self. Just very briefly for our listeners, Dornberger, I always say is Werner von Braun's boss. Is that roughly correct? Within the sort of V2 rocket program, Dornberger was the, the head honcho, as it were. Certainly by the nature of having the word general before his name, you could say that, right? So, But they would argue with one another and von Braun would always say, you know, I was the vision and Dornberger was just the technological, the engineering side, right? He was interestingly arrested by the British and held for nearly two years on war crimes charges. When the British turned him over to the U.S. at their request, there was a note in his file, which I read, which called him, and this is a direct quote, a menace of the first order, and how quickly that was whitewashed. Sex. It might surprise you to know that it's been around for a while now. In fact, we are all the living, walking, breathing, talking proof that sex has been around for a long time. And over on the Betwixt the Sheets podcast with me, Kate Lister, I will be rooting around for the kinkiest, quirkiest stories in the history of sex, scandal and society. Or in other words, the best bits. Well, at least I think so. From bras to BDSM, from African warrior queens to witches, join me as I bed hop throughout time and civilizations to get under the cover with the most fascinating things that we've been doing, not to mention the downright weird. For example, did you know that men in ancient Greece were so turned on by a naked statue of Aphrodite that it had to be protected by guards? We have accounts of men trying to have sex with the statue. It caused a sensation. And that university professors once moonlighted as grave robbers. We were executing less and less people, so mm. there was a real shortage. If you want to hear about all of this and more, then join me betwixt the sheets today, wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. It's worth pointing out, just while we're on the war years, the V2 or one of the V2 rockets was the first man-made object ever to go into space. I forget the exact day, 1942 sometime. So when the Americans captured Von Braun and his rocket team, we also captured all the documents that, that he turned over that had been hidden in that mine. And also, which is so remarkable to consider, the actual V-2 rockets themselves. They were packed up and shipped back to America, where they wound up first at Fort Bliss, an army base in Texas, and then the White Sands Missile Range, where they actually flew into space. In 1946, there were all these different tests going on. And, you know, that's when monkeys started going on them and whatnot. But what I thought was fascinating when we really kind of drilling down on this moment where Vaughn Brown becomes America's scientist, right, mm. is that moment in 1946 when they first successfully get the V-2 to fly truly into space at White Sands. And Von Braun tells this story where he is so enthused by this development that he sits down and pens a letter to Robert Oppenheimer, the father of the atomic bomb, talking about his vision where these two technologies, these two weapons of mass destruction can now be merged as one. That's really interesting. Can I ask, just we're in America now, when you say the Russians also wanted these scientists, just give us an idea of the kind of numbers of people in Operation Paperclip, how many were kind of spirited to America and how many ended up in Moscow? Like how did that sort of division happen? Just in terms of numbers, what we know today is that there were at least 1,600 Nazi scientists who came to America as part of Operation Paperclip. And was it in secret? Like, did the public even know about it? Was it or was it top secret? Or? Really, the short version is America's propaganda machine put out this idea that we got the good scientists. And that's why most right. people are astonished when they read my book and they realize oh my God, these guys were all acting with their real names. When America hired chemical weapons experts, they did so not under some kind of anonymous name or some pseudonym. These were their actual names. And the Americans classified the documents to prove the war crimes. The details of the program were all classified, but it had a public front that was allegedly not classified. 
But we know there were 400, you know, rocket scientists and they came to Fort Bliss and they set up shop. And at the same time, just prior to this happening, and you're talking about the summer of 1945, the Russians were also after the same scientists. And I write a little bit about the Russian program because it's very interesting Unlike in America, where the Nazi rocketeers were considered primary and given the top positions, in Russia, the Germans were so hated that all of the rocket scientists were relegated to sort of second-class positions so that the Russians could put forth the Korolyevs and the, the great Russian rocket designers. And what's fascinating is the Russians actually beat the Americans into space. It's interesting as well, Korolev, the great designer who was the great Russian rocket builder, mm-hmm. everything that they did was in secret and no one really knew what was going on. Well, really, you know, until the 1980s, yes. really. But certainly in America, and we'll come into this in a minute, Von Braun and people like Willie Lay and Walt Disney, they were selling a dream. They were sort of selling this vision and everything was out there in the open and it was a completely different sort of philosophy. Which is why the story of Operation Paperclip, the story of Von Braun, is so fascinating and interesting and important today because I think readers, listeners, thinkers must always consider... What am I being told versus what might be actually going on behind the scenes? And when you think of the fact that the Russians beat the Americans into space with Sputnik, you must then consider that perhaps the Nazi scientists were not all they were cracked up to be. And that had you given American scientists the opportunity to lead the space program, they too would have gotten where we got. I'm sure I read somewhere that Korolev and with Sputnik, because the Americans obviously had a satellite program as well, Explorer One. One of them could have gone either time, but it was it was the Russians had just read about it in a magazine. They'd read about the American Explorer One satellite, and they thought, "Crikey, let's quickly stick up Sputnik a couple of months before and." just show them we can do it, because there was an openness about it. I would have a different take on that history in that the Russians were working on beating the Americans into space from the moment the war ended, or perhaps prior, Mm. because those things don't happen overnight, I don't believe. I mean, that program, in my understanding of the American rocket program, there was actually just so much infighting going on in America. The Navy had a program and Mm. the Army had a program. And, you know, that was creating typical conflict. And that's why we couldn't get our act together. And only once we realized, because of course, the military intelligence behind the scene always predates the actual launch. Yeah. Once the Pentagon knew, oh my God, the Russians are going to probably beat us into space. Then we really got our act together with Explorer. So they're in Texas, this group of Nazi scientists who've arrived in America. What are they doing and why are they doing it? They are specifically working on launching V2s out of White Sands to develop America's space program. First, to send a satellite into space and then ultimately to send missiles into space. And why was that important? Because this was going to be the new way of war, which it is. I mean, Von Braun's V2 is the fundamental origin point for everything we have today with nuclear-armed ICBMs, with the hypersonic missiles we're seeing in the news today you know, involving Ukraine and Russia, although have been in play for almost a decade. 
Von Braun's V2 was the origin story of this. The Defense Department in the United States is always looking 25 years out. The reason DARPA, America's Defense Science Organization, was created was because of the V2. Yeah, it's really interesting that it's, and people forget, if you look at a Russian rocket like Soyuz, which it's the kind of workhorse of human spaceflight, the Soyuz spacecraft is essentially just an R7 intercontinental ballistic missile that was designed in order to put a warhead on it in order to be able to hit America. The whole idea that, you know, we were planning to go to the moon is a lovely fiction, but it's just not the fundamental truth. The idea was we were figuring out ways in which to put an atomic bomb into the nose cone of the missile and hit Moscow because they were doing the same thing. And Von Braun's line here becomes very fast and important, right? Because he's got his rocket team at Fort Bliss in Texas. And then the movement is the 50s are happening and Russia is leading with the missile technology. The American war machine realizes it needs to get its act together and it puts together NASA. And the sole purpose and the group that Von Braun is now leading with all of his Nazis, former Nazis, is to get the Saturn rocket into space so that it allegedly can carry man to the moon, and it does, but also that it has enough boost, again, to be able to load these nuclear weapons and hit Moscow. And at the same time, the technology over on the nuclear side is happening to the degree that those giant weapons are being shrunk down so that they can be smaller, so that they can fit into an ICBM. I mean, the Saturn wasn't designed as a weapon of war. The Saturn was designed for a very specific purpose. But the earlier rockets, things like the Jupiter... They were all designed to lift nuclear weapons. And as far as looking through the lens of history at what was really going on, sure, another narrative is all anyone cared about was getting to the moon, that amazing JFK speech. In military technology, it's the technology that matters, right? So that was Mm. the super booster. So you get enough thrust to get something to the moon. Imagine how what you can do with that same technology. Developing missiles as weapons of war, at what point does that narrative change in, in the popular mind where suddenly Von Braun becomes this cult hero, if you like, and he makes all these films with you know, with Walt Disney, Man in Space. And why was it necessary to sell this space dream to the American public? And suddenly the idea of the astronaut and putting people into space. And I mean, this is what was happening in the 50s. And so, you know, remember, children don't think of things in terms of nuclear weapons. They think of things in terms of, you know, le petit prince and the space dream. And so this is working in the favor of the propagandizing of Von Braun. And he becomes, you know, an American hero, which is sort of encouraged with his military handlers who know the truth about him. And then remember, I'm talking a very small group of people knew the truth about Von Braun. Most people did not. And so he starts writing for American magazines and he's paid a lot of money to write these fantastic articles in Collier's Magazine. As you mentioned, he does this Disneyland TV broadcast in 1955 called Men in Space. My God, 42 million viewers turned in. It was like something like the second highest rated show in American history at the time. And no one had any idea of his political past in America, I'm assuming. We got the good Germans. 
And of course, the few people who were like calling him out on this were usually British journalists. And as we see Von Braun's fame elevate, as the space program becomes forefront in American culture, those that saw him differently as the militaristic Nazi that he was began to drill down on this and began to interrupt press conferences. Some of his colleagues were being tried at war crimes trials in Germany. You know, certainly not Nuremberg, but nonetheless, big trials in Germany and people, again, European journalists, calling out in press conferences, asking Von Braun. And he, by that point, as I write in the book, and again, this is from declassified documents, his NASA handlers instruct Von Braun in telephone calls to say things like, well, of course, the American government is completely familiar with my past period, which was this truth. Yes, they were familiar with his past, but the suggestion was, oh my God, they wouldn't have hired a Nazi. It was just sort of conveniently obscured his past and and kind of airbrushed out. Airbrushed out. And, you know, there are very specific examples which are shocking. Like one of the rocket scientists, a guy called George Riquet, who worked with him in Nordhausen, who built those underground tunnels, who had built Hitler's bunker. Riquet came to America as part of this team, the rocket team. And he was suddenly wanted for war crimes. And when this was going on, the German government wanted to get a statement from Von Braun. And this occurred like right at the height of his fame, like as the Apollo program was getting to the moon. And so what NASA did, and it just demonstrates such trickery and also a very different world, was they said, okay, Von Braun will give you a statement, but it happens to be in like the tiniest town in Louisiana. (laughs) You know, they made up a story that that's where he is. He's very busy. Of course he wasn't. Mm -hmm. And they sent him to this teeny courthouse to give a statement there so that the press wouldn't catch on. And some intrepid British journalist did, you know, and asked him the same questions. And Von Braun's answer, as always, was the American government knows completely about my past. And then the story became, as the Cold War was really heating up, that, oh, this is all Russian propaganda trying to, you know, bag on the American space program. And so there came a point in time where if you said anything negative about Von Braun or any of the German scientists, you were unpatriotic. Interesting. And at the same time this is going on, as you say, Disney films being made, And also these great visions of space future, things like space stations, circular spinning space stations. You know, we think of 2001, the Space Odyssey, and all those ships flying to Mars, Das Mars Project, and these great visions of the future really being eaten up by the American public and the American popular culture. And then promoted around the world, you know. And this is part of the story that I think is so interesting in terms of where we are today, because it asks people to really think about this for themselves. Because again, just to be clear, there are many people in America, for example, that believe that von Braun's Nazi past needed to be excused because if we had not hired him and the fleet of other Nazi scientists that we did who built up our biological weapons programs, our chemical weapons program, our aircraft programs, you know, pilot safety programs. If that had not been the case, America could have 
lost the Cold War, and we would all be speaking Russia now. That is a very solid argument that many Americans take, certainly in response to my book. Yeah, that's interesting. Of course, the American space program takes off. You had Sputnik followed by Explorer, which was the first American satellite in 1958. You had Alan Shepard, first American in space shortly after Yuri Gagarin. And then, of course, as we mentioned, Von Braun leads the Saturn V rocket program, this great, vast, overpowered rocket that eventually took Americans to the moon. Actually, the Saturn V, originally he designed it to go to Mars. It was, it, it was so overpowered, that was the plan, but it didn't really happen. Particularly Apollo, it was so important to America and to the world as a thing, as this great event. How are we meant to judge Von Braun in light of that, in light of something as grand and as extraordinary as Apollo? I think that each individual person gets to judge that for themselves. I mean, I myself have interviewed two members of the Apollo program who went to the moon. And to hear them speak about Von Braun gives you a very clear idea of what a pedestal that man can be put on. Okay, that is one way of looking at it. And the other way of looking at it is judging a man by his past. And this is a debate that is very significant today, as it has been through all these years. I write about dual-use technology. I write about the idea that, you know, every advance can be used for harm or for help. So one could argue, as I do and as I think about, that really it is up to the moral character of the individual human. It has to be, because what else is there? Oversight committees and government agencies, they're all working for different reasons. They all have a different horse in the race, if you will. Some people within them are short-sighted and some are long-sighted. And so for me, six books later that deal with this subject and now working on seven, it's always comes back to the same, who is the human? What is in their heart? What is in their mind? What is their desire? And we can't know that if they're dead. So we have to judge them by the existing facts. Are you uncomfortable when you think about the American space program? I mean, because you've done more research on this particular aspect of it than anyone else. I mean, when you think about Apollo, when you're talking to Apollo astronauts, what's your sense? I think the best quote I ever read on the subject was by one of the French resistance fighters named Jean-Michel, who wrote a book about his experience as a slave worker assembling these V2 rockets. He's one of the lucky ones who didn't die. And in his book, in his memoir, which was published in the early 80s, he writes about how he doesn't begrudge the Nazi rocket scientists for what they did. He has a problem with the myth that they created about themselves afterwards, with the false narrative that they themselves propagated. He even goes so far as to say that he didn't expect any of them to come out and make a public apology, but they should not have promoted a false narrative. And that is what I agree with. And that is where I would say NASA is complicit. And, you know, I write about this at length in the book, and I can give you specific examples whereby NASA doesn't want to come out and talk Turkey about the reality 
of what was known when it was known. Well, space agencies generally don't like to talk about things like that because space agencies, you know, they're government organisations and they have reputations. And, you know, NASA has a very, very global reputation as a doer of good. Do you think NASA should talk more about its past like that and actually be more more open about it? I absolutely do. And I'll give you a specific example and a specific conversation I had with the organization, right? So we haven't spoken about Von Braun's lieutenants, if you will, and we could for hours and we don't have the time. But one of them, a very significant one of them was Kurt Debus. And in the beginning of this interview, you and I spoke about that V2 and I talked about the mobile launch pads that were designed at the end of the war that could put a V2 into the forest and launch it there. That makes it incredibly hard to pinpoint where a rocket is coming from. And that's significant today. North Korea, by the way, has mobile launch pads. Yeah, I was going to say, I instantly thought of Kim Jong-un and his ridiculous, in the forest, he's got these big trucks. Direct descendant of what we're talking about. And Russia has them too. America does not have mobile launch pads, okay? Because they're very dangerous. They put the people at risk in the area. So this was the invention of a hardcore Nazi named Kurt Debus, who came to America and was a lieutenant of Von Braun and ultimately became director of NASA's Launch Operations Center, which is where the Saturn rocket would launch from near Cape Canaveral, okay? And Debus was such a hardcore Nazi, I had declassified documents that showed for the first time, I believe, that Debus would actually wear his Nazi uniform, his SS uniform, to work at Pinamunde. okay? The others had enough of a decorum to wear suits. Debus wore the Nazi uniform. That is very significant in the context of what we're talking about. And as the record shows, he had a colleague at Punamunde turned over to the Gestapo, arrested because the guy wouldn't give the Heil Hitler salute to Davis. And NASA still gives out the Kurt Davis Award annually. And when I called them up and said, why are you giving an award, given this man's past that we now know about? Because many of the other awards, by the way, have been canceled. They said... Their only answer was Kurt Davis is an American hero. And I said, well, what about the fact that we know this now? And they simply didn't want to talk about it. And they said to me that other people don't ask such questions. And I think it's time that people do ask those questions. And you can still have a debate about of all of this. But this idea of completely whitewashing and locking the key is, is silly in 21st century. Yes, these are important topics that we talk about a lot at the moment about how we should view people who have unsavory pasts, who have perhaps helped do wonderful things, whether it's artists or scientists. I'm just trying to gauge, is there a spectrum that we can put Werner von Braun in in terms of evil scientist or brilliant scientist? I don't know what it would be. And there is the debate. Just to sort of sum up your feelings about him particularly, I mentioned Tom Lehrer, the great comedian songster, you know, and he was nothing to do with the space program at all. He was just a member of the American public, but had such a hatred of Von Braun. It's interesting. At least some people of that era really understood his past. After writing the book and studying all these Nazis and going to Germany and sitting in the Bundes archive and reading all the transcripts of the different Nazis when they were interviewed at the end of the war, 
my conclusion is that it is incredibly dangerous for an organization, for a government, and also for an individual person to convince themselves that the ends justify the means. I could talk just, well, we could talk for the rest of our lives about this, but thank you so much for coming on and sharing some of your thoughts. I've got to ask, after this book, you mentioned book number seven. What's number seven? Is it a continuation of a theme? Are you still in this world? Absolutely. I write about war and weapons and US national security and world security and secrets. Mm. And I write about dual use technology. And I write about really frightening things. Hey, if ever there was an example of dual use technology, it's the rocket. Yes, it is. There we go. Thanks for coming on the show and sharing your thoughts and your scholarship with us. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. So there we go. Thanks very much for listening. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Hope you're enjoying the podcast generally. We've got loads of other episodes you can go and listen to. And if you are enjoying it, don't forget to tell all your friends and family about it. And if you've got a suggestion for a topic or a story that you think we should cover, however niche it might be, you can email us at patented at historyhit.com. Thank you very much for your company. It is hugely appreciated. And I'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play, and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code patented at the checkout. You get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.